Oh, a few years ago, would have been when we were still in Leangatha, it was a pretty tough time in the last few years. And the Lord was convicting me about my commitment to him. It's probably a funny thing for a minister of the gospel to say, isn't it? But he was challenging me about what I was prepared to believe about him. He was questioning my heart concerning the extent of my devotion to him and whether my trust was really in him and whether I really believe and took to heart his word or whether something else was determining or affecting my responses to the circumstances that he put me in to life itself. God was challenging me about the place I've been giving him in my life and about what I was living for. And central to all of that, he was challenging, concerning my heart, which would be summed up in one word, and that's a word that we all struggle with, unbelief. It's an interesting word, unbelief. We often think about it in terms of doubt, and therefore some kind of weakness in our faith. But equally true, unbelief can exhibit itself in pride, thinking that we can do it, that it's all up to us. Equally, pride is a weakness in our faith. You know, we can even go on thinking we're doing things for the Lord, and pressing on, and yet leave him out of the picture as though we've got no dependency on him. You see, this life that we live is not an easy life. Jesus never said it was. In fact, he said it wouldn't be. For the gate is narrow, he said, and the way is hard that leads to real life and those who find it are few. If you are walking with the Lord, if that's your heart's desire to walk closely to him, then expect hard times. And give thanks for them. Isn't that a test of faith? (laughs) Giving thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You see, there are many instances in life where things happen that perhaps we don't understand, real needs that we have that don't seem to be being met. Life can be really hard. And unbelief can be very powerful if it's left to have its way. Now, God was challenging me in this. Of course, I believed in him. Hopefully you do too. I was never doubting the genuineness of my salvation in Jesus. But was, I, was God getting my devotion? Was he getting my praise? Everything that was due to him because of who he is? Am I humbled in his presence? Indeed, do I make time to come to him as the source of life? This one who through his son Jesus rescued you and me from the pit, if you belong to him, 
giving us a new life with a real hope, an eternal life with him. So I'll start with the question, where are you with him right now? Do you really know him? Do you really have faith in the living God? Well, to have faith in something or in someone, as we're talking about that tonight, you have to believe what is true about them, particularly if you're going to rely on who they are and what they've said. So when we talk about faith, I believe that a solid starting point is to consider the one we're called to have faith in. So this message tonight is a reminder about the God we worship and a declaration to perhaps anyone here who doesn't know him of what he is like. So I want to read to you as I start this uh, process, if you like, um, of a passage that comes out of our own confession and document that talks about God. This is what it says. It's in chapter 2, if you ever want to look it up. There is only one living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection. He is a most pure spirit, invisible, with neither body, parts, nor passive properties. He is unchangeable, boundless, eternal, and incomprehensible. He is almighty, most wise, most holy, most free and most absolute. He works all things according to the counsel of his own unchangeable and most righteous will for his own glory. He is most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, and he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He is also most just and terrifying in his judgments, hating all sin and will by no means acquit the guilty. It's comprehensive, isn't it? It's a comprehensive declaration of the God who we say we worship. It speaks about a God who is in control. It tells us that there is no one else like him. That he is a holy God, unchangeable, eternal, incomprehensible. Almighty and yet at the same time most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering. He is a God, my friends, who forgives. And he is a God who rewards those who seek him. Well, throughout the ages, and if you read the scriptures, the Old Testament particularly, even in our own lives, we tend to put our trust in other things. We, see, we seek our meaning, our comfort, our purpose in, in life in a myriad of different ways. Some go off in mysticism. Some look to the world for their pleasures. We even look to one another. And yet we don't come as often as we should to the only true God who lives. 
So I'm going to ask another question this, this evening. Whether you're a believer or not, God is asking you, where are you putting your trust? Because we all trust in something. In the reading from the prophet Isaiah, God is asking this very question. In whom or what does your faith lie? He says in chapter 40, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? And then in the reading we had tonight, Isaiah talks about other gods. They're not really gods. They're, they're nothingnesses. He talks them about things that men construct Idols made by skillful craftsmen out of metal or gold, as they'll, they'll end up with something that'll stand the test of time. And if you're not that rich, you'll get someone to make a, an idol out of wood for you that won't rot, that won't move. He's telling us about constructs of man, things that we want to worship. He's actually talking about constructs of the devil. Designed to shift our allegiance from the one true God onto something else. And actually break the first commandment. Which says, you shall have no other gods before me. I wonder if you ever think about where you're putting your hope in that, regard, in that way. Well, that's what unbelief does. It shifts our allegiance away from where it needs to be. And that's where the trouble all begins. When we shift our allegiance, we direct our hopes away from the living God onto something that, is, that offers no hope. Something that can't provide the very things that we need. The psalmist in Psalm 115 talks about the type of idols that Isaiah mentions. He says they have mouths but they don't speak, eyes but don't see, ears but don't hear, noses that don't smell, hands but don't feel, feet that don't walk, and they don't make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. Just think about that. Whatever you are worshipping, you will become like But our God is not like that, is he? He is living and active. He is spirit, a person very much, but not like you and me. We, in the scriptures we'll see his character. We, we see that he laughs, he laments, he gets angry, he loves, he has feelings, he hears and he speaks. He is unchangeable, the same yesterday, today and forever. He is a powerful, most holy God who is perfect and he rules over the universe, we are told in tonight's scriptures, over all his creation, over every human being, every spiritual being, every ruler on earth and over you and me. I wonder if you really believe that. Do you not know? Do you not hear? 
Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. It's interesting in the reading from Isaiah, we're told that God brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. It's good to remember, isn't it? Not only does he put people in these positions of power, but he, he, can only, he only has to breathe on them and they're gone. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, He does not faint nor grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. We don't always understand what God is doing, do we? We don't always see clearly what's behind it all. And sometimes it'll only be when we look back and begin to understand that there are actually purposes behind all that God is doing and he's allowed to come in our lives. One writer by the name of Raymond Ortland says, There are depths to God's wisdom we can't access. He knows what he's doing. So we don't live by explanations, we live by promises. We don't figure God out by our brains, we submit to him by faith. Before the reading we had from Isaiah this morning were the words, Behold your God. Behold your God. God knows every struggle that we go through. Everything that matters in life hangs on who God is. That was what someone wrote. Everything that matters in life hangs on who God is. You see, to the world, they have a totally different perspective about God. In times past, perhaps they'd thought about him as a ruthless God, and that's often something that's quoted, isn't it? As a harsh God, how could he possibly have done that or allowed that? But then, increasingly seen through the eyes now of a generation that's doing everything it can to outlaw the concept of sin, to the world in which we live in, our God is a God to be ignored. And his holiness is to be fought against. So the world is trying to direct attention to its own constructs. It makes its own gods to be the gods that they want them to be so that they can live the lives that they want to live. Not the life that God created us to enjoy. And as I was preparing this, I thought, could it be that we, the church, have lost sight of the reality of the living God. 
Could it be that we, the church, are putting our faith in something other than him? I hope that's not the case. And I'm not suggesting it at all is the case here. I'm talking about the wider church. And I was considering in that light what's written about the seven churches in the book of Revelation, how God addressed them, each of them, in, with various concerns that he had for them. I won't go through them all, whether it was false teaching or tolerating sexual immorality, being lukewarm or being dead. And the one that got my attention most of all for tonight was what was written to the church in Ephesus. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but, it, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. And I thought, oh, what a good thing for, for God to say about them. Wouldn't that be lovely if that was what he was saying to us? But you see, the problem is he didn't finish there. He says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. A.W. Tozer is one of the, I suppose he was a pastor, was he, or a theologian pastor, said many of the gospel churches have made some great gains over the last years but we've also suffered one great central loss, our lofty concept of God. Christianity, the great church, has for centuries lived on the character of God. She has preached God, she has prayed to God, she's declared God, she's honoured God, she's elevated God, she's witnessed to God. But in recent, recent times there's been a loss suffered. We have suffered the loss of that high concept of God. And he says this tragic and frightening decline in the spiritual state of the churches has come about as a result of our forgetting what kind of God God is. Perhaps we want to be like the church in Philadelphia. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have little power and you've kept my word and not denied my name. What does God's name represent? Who he is. What he's like. Faithfulness in what he's promised. Unbelief in any form denies something of God's name. That's why our sin and unbelief is really the un underlying factor in, in, in all our waywardness. That's why our sin needs to be seen as serious as it is. But we have a God who, although he hates sin, he is also most loving, gracious, merciful, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, 
forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin. You'll see that in what the Father did in sending his Son from heaven. To demonstrate to us just how loving, how gracious and merciful, long-suffering he is. No matter what the sin, God will forgive. You see, God made you and me that we might love him. He gave you and me our earthly lives that we may live for him and enjoy him now but also for eternity. So how do we come to know God more deeply? The way that he longs for us to know him. The writer to the Hebrews in chapter 11 verse 6 says, Without faith it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. I think the translation we read up from the new, um, NIV said he rewards those who diligently seek him. I wonder whether you're diligently seeking God. Not just for what you want, but to actually honour him, to glorify him, to praise him, to wait upon him. Not treating him as though he's far off, but he's near. Experiencing his presence, going to him for everything of life, as Jim prayed. Bringing everything before him. You know, I've had situations, even in the reformed world of theology, that think there are certain things in life that you don't need to bother God about. We can work those things out for ourselves. What a deception. God wants us to be totally abandoned to him, totally reliant on him for all things. But to believe and seek God like this, don't we have to believe who he says he is? And if we believe who he says he is, shouldn't we believe what he says he will do for all who put their trust in him? You see, you can't trust in his word or his promises unless you can trust in the one who spoke them. Trusting in his faithfulness. So who is he? What is he like? Well, he's like his son. We read in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 18, No one has ever seen God, the only God, referring to Jesus, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And then in John 14, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. And that really special passage, I believe, from Hebrews 1 that we read this, morning, this evening, Michael read earlier. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, 
God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The exact imprint of his nature. That's because Jesus is God. Everything about Jesus and what we we read about him, what we experience of him, what others testify concerning him, reveals God to us. Tells us what God is like. In the Old Testament, God's glory was revealed to man in various forms. Pillars of cloud by day, of fire by night, of fire and a burning bush that wasn't consumed, other manifestations of God's power and authority, evidencing his presence among his people. But in the New Testament, God's glory was revealed to us in Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, we don't see Jesus, do we, as, as just a human being. We see him as God incarnate. We see in Jesus' birth, death and resurrection the fullness of God's glory on display in the presence of people like you and me. And they've testified to it and it's been written down for us to believe. The revelation of God's character, the magnificent outpouring of his love for you and me. Most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, and in the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Well, I wonder if you know this Jesus. Do you believe in Jesus for who he is? For like Father and the Holy Spirit, he is God. Do you know him and is he your first love? Are you in a personal relationship with him? A.W. Tozer says this as well. For some Christians... God is no more real than he is to the non-Christian. Against all this cloudy vagueness stands the clear scriptural doctrine that God can be known in personal experience. Just like you and me, we can know God intimately if we'll only give him a chance. How do we get to know him? Well, we study the scriptures, we obey his word, we listen because God speaks, we pray, we seek, and we look to Jesus. We look to Jesus and we follow him. I feel what God is saying to us in all of this tonight is that he has much more for us all to experience, much deeper walk for Him or with him than we, we have had so far.
in our own personal lives and the life of the church. But there's one thing that's paramount in order for us to experience his power, the fullness of his Holy Spirit, the ability to witness the miraculous in our midst, and that's that we truly believe him. Ray Ortland says, God is my salvation and everything else in my existence will find its meaning in reference to God or it will have no meaning for me at all. We need more than seeing God through our own eyes. Isaiah shows us God through God's eyes. And if we see God through God's eyes, it changes how we see everything else. My friends, do you believe that God is who he says he is? Because your faith depends upon it. Let's pray.